When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 80s is often seen as the defining era of the teen movie. While The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off might have garnered all the attention, it was this 80s flick that took the teen movie from raunchy sex comedy to more serious themes of losing innocence, living with regret, and navigating independence at such a young age. Released to little fanfare with many expecting it to fail, the film became a surprise hit, showing the value of the teenage market. So grab your red bikini or your checkered vans as Nicholas Pepin and I discuss Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982 on this episode of the 80s Flick Podcast. Is this necessary? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Is this proper? What is it that gets inside your heads? Uh. Is this educational? <laughs> no, but it sure is fun. Hey, bud, <laughs> let's party. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where only the rules get busted. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 20th at Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Did you bring your red bikini? Just make sure. I absolutely brought my red bikini. <laughs> All right, well, welcome in, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in for this episode. As I always say, we've got a good one today, and I do mean it, as I always do. Well, most of the time I mean it, but today I really mean it. <laughs> We're talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, one of the definite cult classics of the 80s, 
coming of age teen comedy uh, with some serious stuff mixed in. Of course, we're going to get into all that. But first, let me introduce my guest co-host who's been on the show many times and you know him, you love him from Pop Culture Roulette. It's Nicholas Pepin. How you doing, Nicholas? Oh, thanks for having me. I uh, was just hanging out in the van. Uh, <laughs> little hazy in there. Little hazy. Uh, little got, hazy. A pizza com- got a pizza coming a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> Extra anchovies. Yeah, no, I mean, this is this is uh, one of the defining movies of the 80s. And, and it's, it's you know, when you think of the 80s, I mean, it's definitely in there as one of the cult classics. But I, you, I mean, I, for me, and, and we'll get to it, I mean, it came out in 82. So, I mean, really, it kind of set the tone. Mm-hmm for the entire decade i mean john hughes owned the decade but right as we discussed (laughs) as as we just as we just discussed on that one of the last episodes that you had that we Mm -hmm. did did that special episode but i mean amy heckerling kind of kind of set the table for john hughes to come in and and you know yeah i think ride ride the wave as it is yeah we're we're jumping in early but i think i think this kind of and, you know, we're speculating a lot, but I think this kind of gave John Hughes permission or it inspired him to say, oh, you mean I can make a movie that's not just like Porky's or that type of just, you know, the raunchy sex comedy and have some substance to the story I'm trying to tell. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can directly see the relation between this movie and some of the serious tone that this movie definitely takes at certain points mm-hmm. and The Breakfast Club. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, for there, sure. there's. I mean, I don't think you can get to the Breakfast Club a couple years later if you mm-hmm. don't have this movie set the table. Yeah, even though when we talked about it with the no, we talked about it with Sixteen Candles. That when he did Sixteen Candles, they were trying to make him. They were trying to have John Hughes raunch it up a little bit because even though I don't think we've discussed Sixteen Candles in the. Was it which one was first? Breakfast Club or Sixteen? I always get this mixed up. I, I think made this breakfast, part. I think Breakfast Club was first. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it was. But I know we just we discussed it on one of the John Hughes where they were trying to they wanted him to give it more of a raunchy edge. I know they talked about that with Back to the Future. Like there was some like uh, some studios didn't want it to be as, you know, family friendly, even though, you know. That's a whole new discussion. Let's not talk yeah. about that. Let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. But anyway, so uh, but let's 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 start how we always start. When did you see Fast Times at Ridgemont High for the very first time? Um, you know, this is going to surprise you, but I don't think I saw it until the early 2000s. Yeah, man, I mean, that's, I mean, for <laughs> because, guys that are our age, I think that's probably, I mean, this is not something that I would have been able to watch at no, a young age. This is, this is definitely a movie that I'm sure my parents would have never let me watch. Right, same. Um, but there was that time period, right, when when netflix was just a, a mailing dvd <laughs> right. um that like i went on this like kick of like i need to see all of these like you know like looking at the imdb top 100 or like mm-hmm. you know these movies that like the simpsons are constantly referencing or right pop culture you know, those so, know. right i was like i need to finally actually sit down and watch all of the ones that i haven't seen so this would have been when I saw that for the first time. Yeah, I I think I saw a poor TV edit version. And I say that because I, re- I think I remember seeing a TV version, or, you know, first and knowing that it had been heavily edited. Like there was, it was just, I was, I was, it was a poorly, poorly done because it was poorly edited, like how they kind of tried to trim stuff and cover up the language and stuff. It was not a very good 
you know, version or whatever. So I think because when I, I think I didn't, I didn't watch this until I was probably, I was definitely older. It had to have been like, it might've even been after college, like maybe around the same time you're saying, like in the early two thousands might've been when I finally watched it, like the, the, the theatrical version for the first time and was like, Oh yeah, they did cut a lot. I know there were certain things that I knew was in the movie already. You know, you kind of people had talked about, or you'd seen clips of, um, but but there was, I, there was, there was a definite difference between the TV version that I watched probably as a, not when I was young, young, but probably like as a, uh, as a teenager, like between 14 and 16, probably that I saw the TV version to then when I watched it, the, the theatrical version. Yeah. This is one of those movies that like, I, I don't understand. I mean, I get like, you know, it's, it's super popular as a cold hit. So you want to get it on TV, but like to to edit it or to do what you had to do to get it on network TV, like it just mm. doesn't seem. Maybe now with like the digital technology where you can animate and like you know re-edit or you know add in right you know right. things, but I mean like you know and this is a movie you'll never touch. But Showgirls, like when they showed that <laughs> right. on TV, they they animated bikinis over everything. Mm-hmm. You know. But I mean, that's just, I mean, you know, think about, you know, late eighties, early nineties, like that technology didn't exist so much, right? Or they wouldn't have thought to do it. So I don't know how you make this movie make any sense on network TV. I think, I think it, they, like I said, they, they edit, I mean, it's not a long movie anyway. It's only like an hour and a half yeah. anyway. So, and then you add in commercials, I think even with, I, I don't think it was that long, but I think they had, they had trimmed so much. They just kind of it was very choppy. Like they just had certain like of the more funny scenes that they could, you know, change some of the yeah. language and get away with. But, but the, the serious tones of the movie were definitely not is almost like they had, to, they had to edit those whole storylines out because you couldn't really, it would, wouldn't make sense if they left certain things in. So, right. Um, but yeah. So, uh, so how long had it been since you watched it before rewatching it for the podcast? Mm. A good probably, you know, 10, 15 years. I mean, it's not a movie. It's not a movie that like I really feel like is in that will probably is in anybody's like heavy rotation. Like I got to watch this once a year. Like mm-hmm. there's definitely something like it's a pretty heavy movie at points. Yeah. I mean, there's all there's yeah. some slapstick and there's some really funny stuff, mm-hmm. but there's also some there's some really heavy parts that I don't necessarily know if I would put this in the back to school time so let me throw on my <laughs> best times at Ridgemont high dvd right you know? right yeah it's like it has those funny moments in it but it it is as you get into it it's like it becomes a much more serious movie so yeah i get what you're saying i mean you're right it's not one that i think Ooh, i you know i feel like i want to have a feel-good movie it doesn't really have that feel even though yeah. they, they they somewhat kind of try to give it a feel-good ending it still wasn't i didn't finish it thinking like man that was you know like it's yeah. a it's good in the sense of the the way it's made and the, and i would say for the most part the acting and and the themes that it's trying to uh to bring out but it's not one that i'm like as far as like you said rewatchability it's not it's not going to be on my list like a ferris Bueller's day off or a back to school or something that's a little bit right. more lighthearted that i can enjoy yeah. uh multiple viewings of uh yeah and you know i mean i think just due to the nature of the movie, we're going to jump around all over the place. So I don't necessarily know if you're going to follow the same flow that you normally do, but I mean, I'm going to try to. Yeah. (laughs) 
but yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's it's hard. You know, it, the movie itself kind of jumps all over the place. There isn't really yeah, a, yeah. You know, it's kind of more of just a, a a bunch of vignettes like loosely tied together. Yeah, you have you have like primary story. The interesting is you have several different storylines you're kind of following, but they're kind of all jumbled together. And sometimes I don't know if certain things. I mean, it is kind of going in chronological order, but I don't think it's perfectly chronological order. You right. know, time has passed, but some stuff can be kind of shifted uh, based on you know which story they're telling. They don't all have to be necessarily happening at the same time. Yeah, uh, and I will tell you on the rewatch, I there are things that I caught this time around mm-hmm. that, being now I'm in my 40s, that I didn't catch the first couple of times I watched it, mm-hmm. and I it it hit very differently now. Oh yeah, than it did you know yeah. even the first time I watched it when I was in my you know early you know early 20s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a while since I've watched it. I think I've seen it in the last. I think I've watched the whole movie probably in the last 10 years. I think it came on, I think it's playing on Amazon prime now. And it might've been when it, when I saw it pop up on there one day, I was like, you know what? I haven't seen this in a while. I'm going to pull it up and watch. And so, um, so I've seen it somewhat recently. So watching it again yesterday, um, it was still pretty fresh on my mind. There were certain, you know, scenes, of course I forgot about, but, um, but yeah, but I definitely was watching it. Of course, you know, no, we're going to talk about it. I kind of looked at things definitely in a, in a new light and saw things differently than I would just from a casual, casual watch. I think. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world. So many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up! That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher. We're hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about story origin and pre-production. I know you said you did some research, too. So if I if I miss anything or you want to you found some other information, then please feel free to uh, jump in. So. 
The story of Fast Times at Ridgemont High begins in 1979 when Cameron Crowe, who was writing for Rolling Stone at the time, published a book by the same name containing observations after spending a year undercover as a high school senior. Upon the release of the film in August of 82, the Washington Post published a lengthy profile on Crowe and his year masquerading as a 17-year-old, even though he was well into his 20s at the time. Over the course of nine months, Cameron Crowe acted as if he were just an any normal student with the only people in the gag being Ridgemont High School's principal, his homeroom teacher, and several other instructors. When it came time to write the book, Crowe left himself out of the narrative and instead focused on six major characters, which would become the basis for teens featured in the movie three years later. It's said that Crowe based the geeky rat on then Claremont High School student Andy Rathbone. Rathbone eventually became rich and famous for writing many of the four dummy books about computer programs like Windows, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. Okay. So Amy Heckerling would famously make her directorial debut with Fast Times Ridgemont High, but before the young filmmaker signed on to helm the teen comedy, the whole project would have gone in a very different direction. When speaking with Variety for the film's 35th anniversary, Cameron Crowe revealed that Universal Pictures executive really wanted David Lynch to direct, going as far as to invite the visionary director to the studio for a meeting. They said, uh, Crowe had said, he had a very wry smile on his face as I sat talking with him. He went and read it. We met again. He was very, very sweet about it, but slightly perplexed. We thought of him. He said it was a really nice story, but it's not really the kind of thing I do, but good luck. His quote. He then got into his white VW bug and drove off. <laughs> Which is the appropriate response for David Lynch directing this movie. It, yeah. Uh, that, you know, having watched multiple, most, a lot of David Lynch movies. Mm hmm. This is the closest his name should ever become attached to it. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely not his vibe of a movie at all. And I'm not sure what they were thinking, but I don't think, I mean, even when the movie was done, the studio really didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to market it. They didn't know, they didn't think anybody was going to watch it. So I think they were, I think they were trying to ride the success of the book and not really knowing what they had and then trying to get a bigger director to kind of bring some, some investors to the table probably more than anything else. So, uh, but let's uh, talk a little bit about Amy Heckerling. I want to talk about Heckerling and um, Crow. Did you have anything else about the. No, about I the mean, making. No. Cause I mean, I'd, I'd also like to get to Cameron Crow, but. Okay. Let's go. All right. So directed by Amy Heckerling, she graduated from NYU and she decided that she wanted to follow her friend Martin Brest, who you know is director of like Beverly Hills Cop and uh, several uh, big action movies and comedies of the 80s. Uh, she wanted to follow him to the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, where she felt there would be more opportunities to break into the business. But she experienced severe culture shock upon moving to L.A. from New York City, especially because of New York City's public transportation had made it unnecessary for her to learn to drive. When she did eventually learn, she adjusted to L.A. life and started working. Her first studio job was lip-syncing dailies for a television show where she started making connections in the business. During her second year at AFI, Heckling made her, short, her first short film called Getting Over It about a girl who wants to lose her virginity before she turns 20 and the adventure she has before midnight of her 20th birthday. Heckling continued to work on the film after she graduated from AFI, using the editing studios at night to finish the project after work. As soon as she finished the edit and sent it away to be processed, she was in a car collision with a drunk driver who hit the side of her car, landing her in the hospital with a collapsed lung, a bruised kidney, and mild amnesia, causing her to be fired from her editing job, 
because she could not remember where certain footage was. But eventually she finished the film and held a screening that gained a very positive response, causing Heckling to call it one of the best days of her life. Her next step was to use the film to get a job. Tom Mount, president of Universal Pictures, showed a lot of interest in her, but because she was not backed by an agent, they would not hire her. After months of struggling to find an agent, Mount called Heckling up on the phone and asked her to make a movie. When she first signed on to a feature for Universal, she read a lot of scripts, but it was Crow's script for Fast Times at Ridgemont High that stood out to her. Although she loved the script, she felt that it bore the marks of excessive studio interference. So she read the novel, determined which parts were the strongest, and then sat down with Crow to rework the script. So that's kind of how the whole thing started. So a little bit about her after uh, after the success of the movie. She was bombarded with similar but lesser scripts. It was hard for her to find anything that wasn't about high school, preppy kids, or a story about a girl losing her virginity. Eventually, she found her next film, Johnny Dangerously, in 1984 with Michael Keaton, Joe Piscopo, and Danny DeVito. It was an airplane-style spoof of gangster movies, but it failed to catch fire at the box office upon its initial release. The following year, she directed National Lampoon's European Vacation with Chevy Chase, a sequel to the popular Vacation. With it, she scored her second solid hit at the box office. The film, like many of Heckerling's films, received poor reviews from critics, but proved to be very popular with audiences who just wanted to watch a funny movie. In 89, she had her biggest success with Look Who's Talking with John Travolta and Christy Alley and a baby voiced by Bruce Willis. Heckerling got the idea for the film while she was pregnant with her daughter and further developed it into a feature. And then we talked about on the uh, the director's uh, episode in 1985, she wrote and directed Clueless, reworking and updating Jane Austen's Emma as a 1990s teen comedy about wealthy teenagers living in Beverly Hills. She thought of Clueless as a television show because she loved to write the character of Cher, who she described as a happy, optimistic California girl and wanted to explore all of her adventures. But after she pitched it to her agent, she was told it would make a great feature instead. So a little bit about Amy Heckerling or I guess a lot about Amy Heckerling. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, we and of course she we did talk about her a little bit on our director's episode uh, panel episode, but she did have a. I mean, she didn't have a blockbuster career, but I wouldn't say she had a bad career. Oh, no, I mean, and you know, even though her her uh, her body of work is not as prolific as other people, like mm-hmm. her impact. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, get in and get out. I mean, you know. Get, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, and especially for a female director, you know, at that time was already you know tough. Right. So, uh, to know that she got, I mean, to do the sequel for Vacation is pretty big. Uh, I mean, Michael Keaton was kind of at the at the height of his comedy career when she was doing Johnny Dangerous, even though it didn't go over that well. Um, but you know, she bounced back with Look Who's Talking. That was, a, I think, a surprise hit. I remember, I remember seeing that. We haven't covered that on the podcast yet, but I remember seeing that one. And then, of course, you know, Clueless being probably the one. Well, the and you the, know. The one vacation that people don't really like to talk about too much, European vacation. She yeah. somehow directed that. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I'm saying, but I'm saying for her, for her to be handed the sequel, they obviously right. wanted they they weren't going to give it to just anybody. So they knew that she could right. handle handle the comedy. She really said, like like we said at the top of the episode last, you know, the, one of the last episodes you did, like she kind of set the table. Mm-hmm. You know, you know I, I don't. I think she doesn't get as much credit as she probably deserves for. Yeah. Yeah. setting the tone of, of the movies and, and the TV shows that would come because 
you would get later in the eighties with like family ties and growing pains. Like, you know, every couple episodes you'd have that special episode where something <laughs> serious would happen. Right, and I do right. you 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 have to wonder if she doesn't do that in eighty two. Mm-hmm. Like and not to say that she was the first one to do it, but no, I, mean, I think no, the but... best times at Ridgemont High became such a cold hit like out of the gates mm-hmm. that you know, she kind of laid the groundwork for Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles and, and what John Hughes did. And then, you know, obviously they became very popular. So in that late eighties when you had, you know, the T V shows kind of emulating what was happening in the movies, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know they, they kind of fed off of each other. And you have to wonder, like she if David Lynch does this movie, well, first off, we're probably <laughs> never talking about it again. Right, right. And and two, like, you know, who knows what happens with the tone of the rest of the decade. Right, right. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about Cameron Crowe, who uh, we're both, <laughs> maybe that's why I thought about you for this episode, because we're both big fans of Cameron Crowe, for sure. Yeah. Uh, following the success of Fast Times Ridgemont High, Crowe wrote the screenplay for 1984's The Wildlife, a pseudo-sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, whereas its predecessor followed teenagers' lives in high school, the wildlife traced the lives of several teenagers after high school living in an apartment complex. Filmmaker James L. Brooks noticed Crow's original voice and wanted to work with him. Brooks executive produced Crow's first directing effort, which he also wrote the screenplay for, 1989's Say Anything, about a young man pining away for the affections of a seemingly perfect girl. Say Anything was positively received by critics. That was followed by Singles in 1992, a story of 20-somethings that was woven together with a soundtrack centering on Seattle's burgeoning grunge music scene. Crow landed his biggest hit with Jerry Maguire in 1996. Then Crow was given the green light for to go ahead with his pet project, the autobiographical film Almost Famous in 2000. And of course, he's done other movies as well, but those are probably the, the ones he's probably most well-known for. Yeah. I mean, again, with Cameron Crowe, like, I mean, you when you hear that name, like, it's it's such a, like, giant name. But then you look at his body of work and it's not that big. But I mean, right. you know, almost famous, Jerry Maguire, you know, Vanilla Sky, whatever. But yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Town, I really like that one. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. Yeah, that one got that one kind of gets missed over. But I mean, some mm-hmm. of the stuff that he just wrote, like, I mean, I. I can't say I've ever watched a, a Cameron Crowe movie or a Cameron Crowe written movie. I've been like, well, this is bad. Right, right. You know, he knows I mean, what he's doing. Yeah. Singles, I remember more for the soundtrack than I do yeah. the movie itself. Yeah, same. I think I had, I think I had the soundtrack before I even watched the movie. It was a while before I, I me finally as well, watched it. Because I mean, Pearl Jam was on it, but <laughs> you know, I think it was one of those like I've listened to the soundtrack so many times. I should probably watch this movie eventually. Right, and I think right. I probably rented it once just because I'm like, yeah, all right. I did, yeah. I didn't see that in the theater. I definitely rented it later, but I've had the soundtrack already. Now, were you like so? Now we're going to jump in the '90s because that's when Nicholas and I were in college together. Were you with the group, big group of us that went to see Jerry Maguire when it came out? Because I know there was a big group of us at the theater that went to see it. I don't think I was because okay. I want to say I remember renting Jerry Maguire and watching that like on video later for the for later for the okay. first time yeah so i oddly enough i was working for a concert pavilion uh as a security guard for a couple of years like when you know summer break would happen i'd i'd go back up to dc right my parents were and so i'd work as a security guard and occasionally we'd have a big concert where they made us all park like away <laughs> um right. so right. we all had to like bus over and then like they were just showing movies and 
Like they had Jeremy Choir on, which is a weird choice to show a <laughs> bunch of people. And I remember like going, okay, all right, maybe I will watch because that's not the kind of movie that I tend to jump at. Right. But I, you right. know, I remember watching it going, all right, this is enjoyable. Like I, I didn't love it the way everybody else did, but you know, okay. it, it is an enjoyable movie and it's obviously heavily quotable. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Was it your roommate? Um, I mean, I had a lot of them. So. I know. It was one of it was one of the guys in the dorm, and this is before Jerry Maguire came out. And it was one of the guys that would come up and would always, you know, go through my VHS collection because I had, I had like the, the VHS collection in the dorm. At least it seemed like I had a pretty good selection that people wanted to come and borrow stuff all the time. And uh, we got talking about movies and like how the movies that were coming out weren't as good. And I was like, man, we need another say anything like, you know, what happened to Cameron Crowe? Like, where is that guy out guy at? And I promise you, like 30 days from there, we saw the commercial for Jerry Maguire from Cameron Crowe. We're like, oh, my gosh, man, we were just talking about this the other day. So I've always every time I think every time Jerry Maguire comes on or I see it, I think about that conversation we had. And it was just so funny. Like, man, what happened to Cameron Crowe? Because we know the same, you know, and those are two totally I mean, they're very, very different in type of movie they are, but they both do relationships and. He's good. I think the thing that I like about Cameron Crowe is he he's a he he does a uh, he does a very good job of weaving a familiar theme or like a familiar genre, like a romance or rom com, into a movie that's filtered with many other stories as well. Like when you think about say anything, yes, it's a love story about a guy who meets a girl, but you've got the story of her father. You've got you know like Lane has his own things going on. Like there's, there's so much depth to the characters that you don't just see them in the relationship. That's all you see. And I think right. you could see that in this as well. Like he follows the life of several different teenagers that is not, but th their stories aren't just so linear, linear in the sense of what they just, they're trying to get from point A to point B. And that's all you see. Like they're, they have multiple things that they're dealing with that you, you see them encounter along the way. And I think the one thing that Cameron Crowe movies really do well is like the conversation between characters. Yeah, is great with dialogue. Is, is, is well, it's dialogue, but it's more real. Like, you know, when you're watching like certain teen movies, you're like, no teens <laughs> talk to each other that way. Yeah. yeah they just yeah. don't. Like, at no point during this one did I ever think, man, these kids don't talk to each other that way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, or this kid is way too grown up for. Like no no twelve year old is acting like that. You know, right. No, you right. Know. And then you get some of those movies where, you know, the, the fourteen year old is the smartest person in, in the world. You know? <laughs> right. And you're just like, come on now. You know? Mm -hmm. And uh, but I feel like in and that's a common thread throughout all of his movies is that most of them the conversation feels more genuine, more real. Like it just in, in you know, even in like um trying to think some of the more like Vanilla Sky, which is a, a little bit more outlandish and a little bit more crazy you know mm -hmm. like every it just, at least conversationally everything felt more authentic yeah yeah i think that's that's the thing i think you know especially with this one because he went undercover and he really wanted to get the pulse of what real teenagers in high school were talking about and thinking about and discussing and all that kind of stuff but it was there are times where it's kind of hard for me it was kind of hard to watch it so i guess like i said as an adult I guess I'm, I already said from out of touch, but it's like, would they, would kids really, like, they're talking about some very frank things, you know, 
some very serious things. And I was like, well, and I tried, I kind of went back to myself. I was like, well, what did, what kind of stuff do we talk about? And of course I don't, you know, it's not exactly the same because I didn't have that same kind of a life as a teenager, but, um, but we were honest with you. I mean, we talked about anything and we talked right. about everything. I mean, we there was still a, there's a freedom as a teenager to talk about those things because you're not bombarded with the, the things of the world to what, you know, or when, you know, at home, you can only say these things, you only can talk this way, but when you're with your friends, we can talk about anything. Cause it's just us. We're not, right. you know, quote unquote, living under the rules of our parents or um, being constrained by the rules of proper conversation in public of, you know, when you're with your parents, or whatever. So, um, but yeah, some of the conversations they had, I was like, man, that's like, that's some heavy stuff they're talking about or some like pretty explicit stuff they're talking about. And I was like, would you really have been talking about that at the school lunchroom table? And I was like, well, yeah, I can remember, I can remember hearing some pretty interesting conversations that I, you know, I, you know, a, a story, a, a story I remember is it was my first day at a new school. I was a junior and I was sitting there eating my lunch. Just like, I just, you know, you didn't know who, where, you know, where the cool table was, the not cool, we'll take cool table. You didn't know anything. You just walked in and sat down. And these other, other guys that were in the same grade as me came and sat down and it, acted like I was not there at all. Like I was completely invisible. And they started talking about how wasted they got that weekend. Like, man, I got so wasted on Friday night and like all the stuff they did, the crazy stuff he was doing in his car. I mean, just like, why would you say this in front of somebody that you do not know, <laughs> but they were just so oblivious to me sitting there. So. Well, and you know, much like some of the conversations and, and there's a, a character that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. I, you have to wonder how much of it is, is true. Like just trying to one up each other or trying to. Yeah. Oh off. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's definitely you know, there. In like, the movie. yo, we got so wasted. No, you were doing what I was doing on Friday night, sitting home at home watching the X Files. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And then telling your buddies how how much oh, you partied man. on set. Yeah. Oh, can you believe I got with so and so? No, right. No, you didn't. Right. You didn't do anything. You were. <laughs> you're a liar. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, you're right because that that is definitely part of one of the characters that there's always the she's got to be in competition with everybody. So. But all right, well, let's talk about casting since we're kind of in that zone and and it's a lot to cover and I'm going to be as brief as possible, but we'll we don't want to overlook anyone, even though I'm sure we will. Uh, The cast is stacked with familiar faces, but the list of those who auditioned and didn't land a role, according to the DVD commentary, uh, included Ali Sheedy, Meg Tilly, Matthew Broderick and Ralph Macchio, who they said they couldn't afford. He was asking for a larger salary. When that I saw that. When did Karate Kid come out? It was before, it was after, but he had already okay. done. I think he had he was that, coming off the success of The Outsiders. I think. Okay, all right. Because Outsiders, I think, was eighty one or is around the same time. I mean, he had just done a Francis Ford Coppola movie, so of course he was his agent yeah. was probably. Yeah, I saw that, and I'm like, okay, wait. I mean, really? Yeah. Machio was too expensive. Now, granted. Some of the names that we're we're gonna get to, this was their first movie. So yes, all, you know, pretty much all of these, just about all of these are first movies. Yeah. So they were very affordable. Now Ralph Macchio would be very affordable compared to some <laughs> of the names you're about to list. So exactly, exactly. All right, starting at the top. Even though, well, we'll talk about it. So Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli, the stoner teenager who is an expert surfer. Uh, Penn began his acting career in television with a brief appearance in episode 112 of Little House on the Prairie on December 4th, 1974, almost one full month after I was born. Uh, but it was directed by his father, Leo Penn. Didn't know that he was the son of a director, honestly. 
uh, following his film debut in the drama Taps in 81, which is a fantastic movie, and a diverse range of film roles in the 80s, including Fast Times to Ridgemont High and Bad Boys, Penn garnered critical attention for his roles in the crime dramas At Close Range in 86, State of Grace in 1990, and Carlito's Way in 1993. Uh, as I mentioned before, Matthew Broderick was offered the role of Spicoli, but turned it down. Herculine described casting Penn, whom she first met while he was sitting on the floor outside of the casting office, as a feeling of being super overwhelmed by his intensity, even though all he had done was look up at her. She knew this was her Spicoli, even though they had seen even though they had seen other people who had read better for the role. And uh, I did read lots of stories about how he was definitely a method actor. Like no one met Sean Penn until the rap party. Like he only, he was Spicoli the whole time he was there and he didn't want anybody on set besides the crew. When he did his scenes, he would seem to be very, uh, very method actor. Yeah. I, 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 he, I think he even still tries to do that. I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess everybody's got their method. I don't mm-hmm. know if method acting is for me. Like, I know Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> is really right. big into it, but I just feel like I don't know. Like, you, you I don't know. That's yeah. a whole other. That's taking, a whole other. Taking a, yeah, exactly. That's a whole other conversation. Part. Yeah, uh, I may lose some listeners right now, but I, I've got to say it. Spicoli is is probably my least favorite character of this movie, and it always surprises me why he. I mean, I know he was probably the he was kind of the big name of the movie. Cause of course he got top billing for the movie, yeah. but I don't understand why he's the center of like the, the poster, even the poster when it came out was just him. Like he was a central character and he's really not. I mean, he's one of the characters that we follow, but I don't think he's my favorite character. I'm with you. I, you know, I, I he's not my favorite character. Yeah. I have a different character who's my favorite yeah. and it's probably different now than it was then. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I would agree with that. And we'll and we'll save that for the end. Well, because you you know one of my questions I'm going to ask. So, uh, but moving right along, Jennifer Jason Lee as Stacy Hamilton, the 15 year old freshman who works at Perry's Pizza. She began her career on television during the 70s before making her film Breakthrough as Stacy Hamilton. Uh, she later received critical praise for her performances in Last Exit to Brooklyn '89, Miami Blues in 1990 with uh, Alec Baldwin, Backdraft in '91. Single White Female in 92, and Shortcuts in 93. Uh, I didn't know that her father was Vic Morrow, who died in the helicopter accident on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie, three weeks before the U.S. release of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hmm. No, it's amazing when you start thinking of because people change their last names and mm-hmm. whatnot. Like, yeah, yeah I, know, I know currently there's this whole Nepo baby thing going on. Where right, like, right. But it's it's been happening since the beginning of Hollywood. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, right. how many generations of Barrymore's have there been? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So uh, Jodie Foster was considered for the role of Stacey Hamilton. Ali Sheedy actually read for the role, but Heckerling decided she wanted someone that seemed younger and more fragile, even though Jennifer is more than four months older than Ali Sheedy. <laughs> I mean, but, Jennifer, you know, yeah. she definitely looks young. She I does. Mean, she does. I mean, she was actually 19 while filming the movie, but she definitely passed for someone yeah. in their younger teens. Yeah, I mean, so. she passed for a 15-year-old. Yeah. Um, so and I, I, I said I was going to do it, but I, I just I, – it was going to take more research than I wanted to do. I wanted to find the actual ages of the characters when the movie was made to see the, the age differences. I know there were only two actual teenagers, and I'll mention that at the end. But, um, but I will say, like, there's – 
there was only one character that I felt like they really tried to make really young and he wasn't one of the primary characters either. So, um, he was the, uh, I didn't put him, I didn't put him down cause he didn't do a whole lot of things outside of the movie, but he was it. He was like one of the side friends. Um, he wore glasses. He had like blonde hair. Oh, the one who begged to move from the one restaurant to the other. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They, they were Hope making do chicken nuggets. Yeah. 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 That guy, like I was like, that guy's clearly 30 years old and they're trying to make <laughs> him look like he's 16. So, um, but uh, speaking of looking older, Judge Reinhold is next on the list as Brad Hamilton, the older brother of Stacy. Uh, Reinhold had been in over 75 has, I'm sorry, has been in over 75 motion picture and television roles. His films include Stripes, Fast Times, Ruthless People, the Santa Claus trilogy, as well as the three Beverly Hills Cop movies. Fast Times and Beverly Hills Cop were voted by the American Film Institute as two of the top 100 American comedies. He received an Emmy nomination for his performance as the close talker on Seinfeld. I remember that episode and his guest star appearances in Seinfeld and Arrested Development received two of the highest ratings on both series. Um, so they had several people that read for Brad. Uh, Tom Hanks was considered. Um, but the, uh, one of the things I read, I didn't write it down, but I was just thinking about it was talking about age that they wanted they wanted Reinhold, but they thought he looked too old. Like he was one of the first people they cast. And one of the producers, like he looks too old. And so they made the decision because they wanted to keep him that they were going to cast all the seniors, quote unquote, in the movie to look around the same age as Judge Reinhold so that it would be more believable. Okay. That makes but, sense. But I would, if I didn't know he was a senior in the, in the movie, I would have thought he was in college yes. at the very least. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And plus, because and, and if really, unless it's mentioned, because almost every scene in the movie, he's either at home or he's at work. So you never actually see him at school, do you? Like, I can't mm. think of a single scene of him in the school. No, I can't either, quite honestly. Like, yeah. Maybe at the school dance at the end, but even then, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't remember if he was there or not, so... Yeah. All right. Anything to add so far? We're good. No, we're we're good. All right. Then we've got Robert Romanus Romanus as Mike Damone, the smooth talking teenager who takes bets and scalps concert tickets. Uh, he starred in the 1983 series The Best of Times as Pete Falcone. He also starred in the 1985 film Bad Medicine with Steve Gutenberg. His other TV roles included a Fame and two short-lived TV series, the 21 Jump Street spinoff Booker and a show called Maggie Winters that came out in 1998. Never heard of that one. No. Romanus has starred on soap operas such as Days of Our Lives and The Young and the Restless. Young and the Restless. He's guest starred on many shows, including Chips, 21 Jump Street, Alien Nation, MacGyver, Will and Grace, and My Own Worst Enemy. He's another one that definitely looks older. Like I would have thought that he was another like like at the beginning of the movie before we actually saw him at school i thought he was just like a guy that graduated from high school and was just still hanging out with kids from high school yeah definitely because that that five o'clock shadow is coming in pretty <laughs> strong in a couple of those scenes but yeah but he didn't really have that big of a career even though i mean i would i would say of the characters i felt like he was one of the more predominant characters 
uh, of the movie. Like him and him and Mark Rat Ratner were probably the two main characters to me. Like their story seemed to be the one that was told the most in the movie. Right. So, uh, so I'm surprised that he didn't have as as much of a breakout as others. Um, but he was good. Yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, he was all right. I mean, he's, he will, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to it in a little bit, but you know, like he, he definitely was one of the standouts. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned, Mark Rat Ratner was played by Brian Backer. He also appeared in the 1985 comedy moving violations and also in Police Academy for Citizens on Patrol in 1987. Um, he had a primary television role on the Santa Barbara soap opera in 1990. He made guest appearances on such shows as Charles in Charge, Give Me a Break, and Growing Pains. Another one, like with them two being, you know, two of the main primary characters, really didn't have that big of a career as some of the other ones after this movie came out. No, it's kind of amazing when we get to them some of the characters or some of the actors who became the biggest stars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then we got uh, Phoebe Cates as Linda Barrett, the best friend of Stacy. Uh, Phoebe had been busy. I'm sorry. Phoebe had been a busy New York model starting at the age of 14. She was featured on the covers of four 17 magazines and two L covers, as well as in numerous layouts and other magazines. She actively, she actively pursued her modeling career until she met her film agent at a party at New York's Studio 54. She made her motion picture debut as Sarah in Paradise in 82, the same year she starred in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She then landed the role of Christine Ramsey in Private School in 83, then co-starred in Gremlins in 84. She also had notable roles in Bright Lights Big City in 88 with Michael J. Fox and Kiefer Sutherland, Shag in 1988 with Bridget Fonda and Annabeth Gish, of course, Gremlins 2, The New Batch in 1990, and Drop Dead Fred in 1991. Uh, Justine Bateman was offered the role of Linda Barrett, but she turned it down in order to star in Family Ties. Yeah, which... I mean, Phoebe, Phoebe Case is one of those, like, she had such a big run there, mm -hmm. and then she just decided she didn't want to do it anymore. Like, she yep. just kind of retired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, Gremlins is um, this and Gremlins are probably her two biggest movies are the ones I think she's probably the most recognized from, I would say. Yeah, the other ones were not as bigger hits. And she there was other movies she was into that I didn't mention that she was, she was like, oh, I forgot she was in this. Oh, I forgot she was in this. So. um, But yes. Phoebe Cates. All right, moving on. Getting through the, We'll get through the through the list and we'll talk more about the movie. Uh, Ray Walston as Mr. Hand, the history teacher. Walston is most well-known as the title character on the classic TV show, My Favorite Martian. His other major film, television, and stage roles included Luther Bills in South Pacific, Mr. Applegate and Damn Yankees, J.J. Singleton in The Sting, Poop Deck Pappy and Popeye with Robin Williams. He played Candy in A Mice of Men, Glenn Bateman in The Stand, and Judge Henry Bone on the TV show Picket Fences, which I was a big fan of. He also played one of the minors in Paint Your Wagon in 1969 with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. As I mentioned, Ray Walston was at the time best known for his role as Uncle Martin on My Favorite Martian in 1963. Unfortunately, Walston, like many actors of that era, was typecast in the role and couldn't book serious roles until the decade ended. Walston said that after the release of this film, he'd be walking down the street 
and young people would see him and shout, Mr. Hand. Walston was grateful for that as it finally meant that he had torn away from being only associated with playing Uncle Martian or Uncle yep. Martin. Yeah. So I thought he was an interesting choice uh, for the teacher. I mean, he was good in it, but I just, it's like, it was just, it was funny to see him in that role. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I know him from, I don't know that I've, I know I must've watched a bunch of episodes of my favorite Martian because as soon as I saw him, I was, I was like, oh, that's the guy from, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but you know, so, you know, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually, he's one of the two characters that like, I definitely have a much different opinion of now than I think when I first saw the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And let's not forget he was in rad. That was another big eighties kind of <laughs> cult, cult classic that I forget that he's in sometimes. So, all right. One of your favorite actors, Vincent Shkav- all right, maybe you could. How do you say his name? Vincent Chevalier. 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 I think it's Chevalier. Maybe Chevalier. I'll I'll yeah. go with that. All right. So one of your favorite actors, Vincent Chevalier, as Mr. Vargas, the science teacher at Ridgemont High, <laughs> described as an instantly recognizable, sad-faced actor. He was actually diagnosed with Marfan syndrome in childhood, which gives him that kind of a sad face uh, demeanor. Uh, he gained fame as a character actor, mainly in supporting roles. His better-known roles include Fredrickson and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 75, of course, Mr. Vargas and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Subway Ghost and Ghost in 1990, Organ Grinder and Batman Returns in 92, Chester and the People vs. Larry Flint in 96, Dr. Kaufman and Tomorrow Never Dies in 97, and ABC executive Maynard Smith on Man on the Moon in 1999. Um, so Mr. Vargas was actually based on Claremont High School biology teacher George L. Jones. Jones kept many animals in class like rattlesnakes, entire beehives, bats, and would regularly take students on strange field trips, such as visiting the San Diego sewage treatment plant or to watch surgery on pigs at the University of California, San Diego. Jones taught at Claremont from I'm sorry, Jones taught at Claremont from 1962 to 1982. So uh. Yeah, because there's definitely a couple of things with him that I'm like, what high school does that? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, when even when they had all the animals in the classroom, I was like, that was definitely not happening at my school. No. Yeah, and then of course the field trip, which is, we'll get to favorite scenes, but that's that's probably one of my favorite scenes is the, is them at the hospital, or the yeah, yeah at the morgue. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a weird one. Yeah. I was like, Spicoli, are you in my class? I am today. <laughs> uh, then we're we're coming to the end, I promise. Amanda Wiss as Lisa, Brad's girlfriend, which I didn't even realize that she was in this. Uh, of course, I know her best from Better Off Dead and Nightmare on Elm Street. But as soon as I saw her on the screen, I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot she was in this. Uh, she began her career in the early 80s in teen-oriented roles such as Lisa in Fast Times Tina Gray in Nightmare on Elm Street, and Beth in Better Off Dead. I've mentioned all those already. Additionally, she had supporting role as investigative reporter Randy McFarlane in the TV series Highlander the Series from 92 to 93. She is also known for playing Woody's ex-girlfriend Beth in two episodes of Cheers in the mid-80s. And because we won't talk about her again, she pretty much played the exact same character that she did in Better Off Dead. Like she did Brad the same way she did Lane. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like I think I feel like they broke up the exact same way. <laughs> I didn't 
see it completely that same way because we knew I thought it was funny because Brad was going to break up with her first. Right. And then she ends up breaking up with him, but she does kind of do it kind of the same way she does Lane. So that is pretty accurate. Yeah. And then, of course, when you were going to get to him, Nicolas Cage made his feature <laughs> film debut, portraying an unnamed co-worker of Brad's at All American Burger, credited as Nicholas Coppola. Of course, he's the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. Cage was originally considered for the role of Brad, but the studio thought his performance was, quote unquote, too dark. Cage was also 17 then and could not work as many hours as 18-year-olds. Nicholas Cage relied about his age so he could get a bigger part. Surprisingly, exactly no one, Heckerling and Crow stated, I'm sorry, Heckerling and Crow stated in the DVD that surprising no one, he made up some really weird improvs during filming. And I also yeah. read it. Go ahead. So basically he started what he's doing now, like, you know, on the very first movie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's almost like a blink and you miss him cameo. Like. Yeah, it is. He's very he's <laughs> hardly in the movie at all. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say, like, I also read um, an article where it talked about how he bragged about being about his his uncle a lot, that that was, you know, you know, I'm Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. And so the point where the other cast got so fed up that they would call him, uh, oh, gosh, what was it? The Apocalypse Now quote. I love the smell of napalm in the morning, but they would say, yeah. I love the smell of uh, Coppola in the morning. And they did it to irritate him because Francis Ford Coppola directed Apocalypse Now. And so because they kind of drove that into him where he upset, he he got so upset, he decided to change his name to Cage after this and not tell people (laughs) that that was his uncle, which is probably smart. But probably he was 17. I mean, full of, you know, ego and and all that kind of stuff. So uh, for lack of a better term, piss and vigor. Uh, so he just probably just, you know, and he's working with older actors, too, uh, that were in their late teens and 20s. So he was probably right. trying to trying to impress and it just backfired on him. But it made him who he is today. Uh, but this was also the film debut of Eric Stoltz and provided early roles for Anthony Edwards and Forrest Whitaker. Heckerling also cast her ex-husband, David Brandt, and his real life band Reeves, Nevo and The Cinch as the band at the dance. And her ex-boyfriend, Beverly Hills Cop and Son of a Woman director, Martin Brest, as the doctor on the field trip near the end of the film. The woman who pulls up next to Brad's car and laughs at him while he's wearing his Captain Hook's fish and ships uniform is Crow's then-girlfriend and ex-wife, Nancy Wilson, guitarist of the band Heart. I think we covered everybody that we could cover. Except one. There's one. There's one. Let's see if the same we're talking about the same one. Taylor Negron. It is. <laughs> I was because we because yeah. we had to complete the back, uh, better off back, dead exactly. uh, you know, link. Like all right. three of those I have them listed separately because I was like all three of them yep. were, so, you know, better off dead. Yeah, know. Amanda Wiss, Taylor Negron, and Vincent Vichelli, Chevelli, that guy, would all later appear in Better Off Dead. And I think it's funny because Taylor Negron is delivering a pizza. Is like his can. It's almost like a cameo in this movie. And I noticed in the credits that he's credited as playing himself. Like they didn't <laughs> even give him a character name in this movie. It actually I, says Taylor Negron himself. I missed that. <laughs> but isn't he's the he's the postman in he's the postal yeah. worker in Better Off Dead. Right. But he played yeah. a pizza. He made he played a pizza guy in something else. Um, he was he was in. 
He's been in so many movies. It's probably easier to say what he's not been in in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. 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 Um, That's kind of why I didn't go into depth with him because he has so many movies that he was in. He's just one of those that guys for sure. But you brought up Anthony Edwards and I watched this movie twice in the last week, two weeks. Uh, I, I missed him both times. Like I saw, I I had his name written down because I came across it on the list. And like, I just like, I mean, I caught Eric Stoltz. He's on. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony Edwards is almost unrecognizable, but he's the other friend like him and Eric Stoltz are the two friends of Spicoli, but he's got such long, like his blonde hair is kind of covering his face most time. Okay. And And he literally looks like he's 15. Like he looks like he's the youngest one of the three of them. So, so uh, when when the random scene of Spicoli and his two friends walk into the burger joint and just rip yes. their shirts off for no yep. apparent reason, yep. Okay, I thought that's who they were mm-hmm. were talking about, but yeah, you're right. He's unrecognizable. But he doesn't right. have. I don't think. I think he has like one line in the movie when they're going when they're going he somewhere. Have lost but... his. He must have lost his hair like the next day after they started <laughs> filming. <laughs> yeah, I think he. You know, <laughs> that's a funny story. Like unless he buzzed it for for um, Top Gun and then it never grew back because I actually knew somebody like when I was in high school that did a buzz cut like cut it like really really short and then it wouldn't grow back like it stay it oh, wouldn't wow. grow back full so it's possible and I mean he just maybe lost his hair but yeah I don't think that was a wig uh, now um, Sean Penn was wearing a wig or a partial wig they said the top of his hair was still there was part of his hair that was still what he had from Taps. But because it was so short, being in a military academy, it taps they had to like fill it out with uh, with wig in other spots. So thought that was okay. Funny. Yeah, you you hit everybody. I mean, you hit everybody else. So, <laughs> but yeah, the only teenagers in the that were actually in the movie were um, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, who was nineteen, and Nicolas Cage, who was seventeen. And it says, I saw one said Phoebe Cates was 19, but I thought I read somewhere else that she was, she was a year older than Jennifer Jason Lee, which would put her at 20. So some of my notes got, got mixed up somewhere, I guess. So, uh, so who would, so I guess we're going to say this. So who was your favorite? Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Judge Reinhold. I mean, I maybe I would have liked other people, you know, the first couple times I saw it. I don't know. Like, as much as I apparently am into, like, the stoner comedy, I've never been one myself. Right, right. So, like, Spicoli, like, doesn't really yeah. know, speak to me. Um, This time around, though, like, I really, like, I, Brad, like, I probably at one point was really, like, glommed on to Rat. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say when I was younger, Rat was probably my that was probably, yeah. that was me. I mean, that was me as as yeah. Oh, absolutely. Age. Yeah, you know, I mean, very... we talked about that with Better Off Dead. But, yeah, you know, Rat definitely would. But this time around, not necessarily that you know I'm like Brad at all, but just I most of his scenes are in my favorite scene section. Like, yeah, he's just I, I he's he he was the way he acted, his reactions to stuff is just. I mean, he was. Mm-hmm. He became my favorite character. <laughs> yeah, it's funny watching him kind of the the levels of disappointment that keep coming at him. And it's like he just has to like he has his breaking moment. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, Brad is probably my favorite as well. But I was going to say like rat would watching it as a teenager. I would have 
I definitely would have gravitated more towards Rat because that would have been my storyline of that pining for the girl and having a shot with the girl and not knowing what to do and just being so, uh, you know, not knowing what to do and then afraid to do anything at the same time. So mainly because I'm not going to use real names and, and it just will embarrass myself more than anything. <laughs> I remember directly sitting at the lunch table in high school. And one of the girls that I was talking with at the time says to me, man, I sure hope I find a date to prom or homecoming. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her instead of, instead of being smart, Right. And, and, and following through, I went, well, I sure hope to find one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, hammer foot. Just, you mm-hmm. know. Yep. Yeah. I have, I have thoughts of, of like saying, if I would have known now, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have, I would have had more dates in the sense of there were girls that I'd realized now that that probably did like me, but I was just so oblivious or so scared. Um, even though they were definitely throwing me signs, I was just oblivious to the signs. And I was like, I was like Oh, that's what that meant. Oh, mm-hmm. that's what she was trying to tell me. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Clueless. No, yeah. Completely clueless. I mean, I wouldn't change how I did it just because you no. know, it would change where I am now. And I'm exactly. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, very happy with where I am right now. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the same time you look back on it and you're like, man, <laughs> what a moron you were <laughs> right right uh but yeah but going back to brad like yeah as as i would almost consider like, once again i don't think about brad being a senior in high school i think of him being like the college or out of high school guy that's trying to work and make money and the jobs you know uh you know the rest the the breakfast scene where the guy wants his refund and you you know anybody that's worked in the food service or the retail industry knows what that's like of mm-hmm. somebody just being a jerk and you're trying to like, you know, explain them there's a policy and protocol. And then that one moment you you kind of blow up and then it, you know, blows back up at your face. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. So those are good. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's, and I've been at that point where you're just like, I, you know, what else can go wrong with, with this? Like how, how many other ways is this going to get worse? Uh, and I think it's funny how he jumps from fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant. Right. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm sure yeah. there were a lot of people in high school who, who have that exact storyline, mm-hmm. you know, getting, getting fired from one fast food restaurant. So literally just walking across the street and getting a job at the other one, you know? Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew, I knew guys like that in high school for sure. Like, then weren't you just working across? Yeah, I quit. I just came across over here. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, we're not talking about favorite scenes yet. We're getting there, but, um, my one of my favorite scenes with Brad is when he's driving the car in the fish, the Captain Hook whatever costume, <laughs> and he goes to take a bite of the fish, and he's like, "This is horrible," and like he does, he's he like spits it out of the car, and then he just starts throwing all the food out of the car. He's like, "I'm done. I can't do it anymore." Like I just, just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and now these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century. 
and in the last two decades we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gag Me With The Spoon, The Other Half Of The Battle, and Chant With The Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. All right, let's jump in. Favorite scene. Okay. I won't say iconic because we all know what the most iconic scene is, and we're probably not going to talk about that on this one because we're trying to keep it family friendly as much as possible. Well, we can at least we can talk about it without getting without breaking the rules. True. Um, I really enjoyed the car crash. When Spicoli was driving with Forrest Whitaker's brother, brother, yeah, and crashes the car, and he's like, "I can, I can fix, fix it. Yeah, I can fix it." My, what did he? What did he say? My dad's a TV repairman. He's got all these tools. Yeah, uh, you can't fix this. Yeah, and then when they show like it got beat, it got demolished by the opposing team. Right. Yeah, he and, he just wrote "Kill Lincoln" or right. whatever, you know. Yeah, and I was like, "Wow, that's for for somebody who's as much of a stoner like that's actually pretty smart, right?" To be like. I'll blame it on them. That everybody mm-hmm. will just believe they did it. Yeah. You know? What I want to know, what this is the part that does, you know, the logic part that's missing is they got they got the car there, but how did his brother not? How the brother get to school the next day, not in his car, and then find his car on the front of the school? Like that's yeah. the part I was like, how, what? Where there was a piece missing there? Yeah, there's but, a lot of logic that that kind of skips. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And there's stuff that got cut out too. I, I was, there's a few. I, I didn't. I didn't go deep into deleted, deleted scenes, and I was. I didn't. There weren't any deleted scenes on the DVD that I watched or the Blu-ray that I watched. Um, but there were a few kind of some storylines that they or they they kind of 
trim some things up that that kind yeah. of un uh loopholes i guess you would say but yeah i um i also really like the the rat going on the date with stacy and forgetting mm-hmm. his wallet and like just like extending it out until until Damone finally gets there <laughs> yeah like when he calls him he's like well man i'm kind of busy like you're sitting in your room watching was it leave it to beaver or whatever he's got on the on something the TV. like that yeah yeah that was like and that was to- that would have been totally me at like my friend hey man i need you dude i'm like you don't know how busy i am right now and i'm probably like sitting on the couch with like cheetos watching you know uh for ferris bueller's day off for the 16th time and uh yeah like i yeah. Really don't want to leave right now uh but funny story uh or yeah it's funny now but my not my first date but one of the first times i took my wife out i met her at her job to take her to lunch got to the lunch place and realized that i had left my debit card at home and didn't have enough cash to pay for the lunch i did not have a friend to i didn't have a friend to call to come bring it to me so she actually had to pay for for the lunch and uh, it took a while to live that one down but she married me anyway so i'm not doing too bad but uh, so when that yeah. scene came up, I was like, oh, man, I know that all too well. And you're just like, how do I tell, you know, at least he, at least he realized at the beginning of the meal when he ordered, not right. at the end. Uh, but yeah, but I what I what I would have liked to have known was how long they waited, because right. I know, you know, it's a long time, all the food on the table. Like, was that like an hour, two hours? Like, were there for three hours before he finally yeah. showed up? And and you already talked about it, but one of my other favorite scenes is uh, Brad going off on that that customer. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I want my two dollars and seventy cents or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a hundred percent satisfied. Right. Well, you ate most of it. <laughs> yeah, that that I do like that one. And then I love the uh with the assistant manager. I can't remember his name. Was a Todd? I don't remember what the probably. He looked like a Todd. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, that is, that was a great representation of a, of the assistant manager of a fast food place. It's like, you know, um, did you, did you use profanity and threaten this customer? Well, yeah, I did. Well, you're fired. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even with his, you know, employee of the month plaque right behind him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I come in here all the time. Like if you came in here all the time, you would know what you're ordering. Anyway, yeah, that that's a good that's a great scene. Uh what do you any other favorite scenes you got? Uh passing off uh when he when his sister's trying to hide the flowers. Yeah. From, you know, and then passing them off as his. Mm-hmm. How much did you spend for it? Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um trying to think of what other scenes that stand out i mean spicoli's got some fun funny i mean i think for comedy wise he's probably the comic relief of the movie more so than anybody else um it may have like some some moments but um when uh you know of course spicoli gets kicked out of the class at the beginning Oh, of course, we talk about the uh, the scene everybody talks about, too, is when they all get the uh, the forms from Mr. Hand at the beginning that just came off the doodle machine and they all smell the oh, paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like I definitely that definitely brings back memories. Like I remember doing that in middle school and high school. Yeah. Um, and then him ordering the pizza in class. Now, did you did you see he he was like the when the pizza guy shows up he's like your sausage and cheese 
Yeah. And he pops open the box. That looked like it was just straight cheese. Like I didn't see any salt. Yeah. I kind of, I looked a little bit harder this time watching it. I was like, it may be under the, the, the cheese or it was just, Hey, Hey, you know, um, catering that is like, Hey, this is what we got. You just got, you just got to use it. And, you know, and back then we weren't, they weren't thinking about repeated viewings and that kind right, of thing. So yeah. they're, you know, um, so it's not going to be that big of a deal, but yeah, I did. I I've seen that little kind of trivia thing before about that. He's not, uh, the pizza is not the same thing they tell him it is. Um, I do like when Mr. Hand comes to his room the night before the dance and kind of finds out what he really knows. I thought that was cool. I wish I would have liked more of their story. Like, I feel like it's kind of peppered in here and there, but I think it loses some of its importance by not having a little bit more uh, continuity with before, like them, like Mr. Hand trying to, trying to help him or those kind of things. And it shows that Mr. Hand isn't like, I mean, because of the the beginning scene, like his introduction, which is, like one of the more iconic scenes where you will mm-hmm. not eat, you will not do yeah. that, you will not do, you know, right. And, you know, and Mr. Hand, you know, that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like it shows like he isn't just a jerk high school teacher. Like he actually does care about the kids. Like mm-hmm. he comes off as rough. Um, kind of like one of the teachers that you and I have. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was, that was exactly what was popping my head. I was like, we both had a teacher like that where we thought he hated every student. Like yeah. he just wanted to fail everybody. And uh, the more you got to know him, you know, as the, as the year went on and then even outside of class, it was like, he really does care about us, but he just doesn't yeah, want he, to tell us that he, he has this right. rough. And maybe that's that old school teacher. That's the rough. Right. I'm not your friend. I'm your teacher. So I have this rough exterior, but know that right. I really care about you. And if you show any sort of like, you know, like attempt at actually doing something like he will go out of his way to help you. Right, and because right. Piccoli does ask him, like, mm-hmm. do you do this for everybody or is it just me? And he doesn't really answer him, so it mm-hmm. doesn't. He doesn't say, like, you know, does he do it for other students or, right? But I do get the feeling like he doesn't, like, he maybe picks one or two students that he does that for, whether or not he saw that like Spicoli just needed more help or mm-hmm. he saw something in Spicoli beyond just, you yeah, know, the, the stoner slacker that he was trying to pretend to be when. Yeah, you know, there was really potential under that. You know. Yeah, that was the thing that was interesting to me about look like once again different perspective now as I'm older. Think about Spicoli, and it's like here's this stoner kid who it seems like doesn't have any drive or determination to do anything besides just smoke weed and you know surf all day, but yet he's at school like he's he's generally upset when Mr. Hand rips up his class schedule right. like and I and like I've known guys who have been like oh that's it well the, I'm not going to school and I'll go I'll just leave and do what I want like but he didn't take it that way so I I, I kind of see like that's what Mr. Hand saw in him is like he's he's showing up every day he wants to go to the dance he wants to graduate you know he's he wants to do what's right he's just he's just right. a stoner kid who that's you know for whatever reasons, all he all he wants to do at this point, but um, and then he answers his questions like you know he was obviously learning something in the class. He's just expressing it a different way than Mr. Hand probably had it on the tests and stuff. So uh, it's a cool it's a cool moment. It's a cool yeah. moment, and one that I I definitely probably would have missed when I was younger. You know, I would have just seen it like you know it just would have been another one of the scenes. But now, like you said, as I'm older and I'm watching it, I'm like, huh. 
Like I, I'm definitely seeing the subtext there that I, I would have missed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk too much about the darker, I say dark, I say darker, the adult themes in the movie, uh, but they're pretty heavy. I mean, and there's some iconic scenes or some heavy scenes in this movie. Right. Part of the drama part of it. But, but let's, we can kind of talk a little bit about them. I don't want to do, you know. Yeah. Got to keep. I it. mean, well, you'd always talk about the iconic scene and there is mm-hmm. clearly one of the most iconic scenes in teen movie history. Right. Has been parodied a thousand times. Right. You know, they they parody it in commercials now. I mean, obviously not to the level Mm -hmm. that it is in this movie. Right. But I mean, you know, that scene and, you know, her coming out of the pool Mm -hmm. is, you know, I mean, I mean, there's there are jokes in Stranger Things about how, like, that's the most paused moment or the part where the tape breaks the most, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, I mean, clearly that is the most iconic scene. Clearly, no, clearly. Um, but yeah, no, you, you forget how dark there are a couple of subtext in this movie, um, Mm -hmm. because they handle what is a very serious subject almost kind of flippantly, not flippantly, Mm -hmm. like, as in like, you know, like it's a joke or something like that, but flippantly as in like, like, it's just something that happens. Right. You know, right. You know, and and you know the the whole. I mean, I guess we we should probably just state it. I mean, the whole abortion subplot. Like, mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not going to get into the politics of it. No, I don't want to get. Into that's the that's not what this show's it. about. And yeah. We'll... Um, but you know, I feel like for a teen movie to handle that subject the way they handled it is about as deftly and is about as as creatively, without getting into the politics one way or the other like Mm -hmm. very carefully done yeah and and you know i mean handled in such a way that like it's not really something that you want to have a big debate about anyway you know right right it just happens yeah i mean it is it they yeah i'm with you it's like it's there but they don't dwell on it long enough for it to become like the 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 main point of the movie like it's there it you know it's part of their story and that's just what it is like it that there are ramifications like you know mike damone was supposed to be there to pick her up he was supposed to pay half the be learning to be independent like we don't see many parents in this movie at all like it's all just right. the teenagers so you know he's got to come with that money on his own and he's trying to like call friends that owe him money to get money to pay for it and he gets to the point where like he's not going to have the money so he just bails and doesn't show up and right. she still has, she feels like she still has to go through that anyway. So of course her brother finds out. And then once again, there's so many like TV or after school special movies that we've seen that are going to take those situations and become heavily melodramatic right. drama pieces. And here instead, it's just, it's just part of the story. Like they're not, it touches it and it moves on. It's not, they don't dwell on it enough for it to become, right. you know, this yeah. big, this big, uh, you know, a huge subtext of the movie, but yeah, it's I, definitely still there, and it's still yeah. Because I have, I wrote down that Damone is just he ends up being a really bad friend, mm-hmm. as well as just bad at many other things. But you know, <laughs> right? You know, it, it's just you know, like because he, you know, he, and I think that's where, like, you know, up to that point, like he maybe is one of your favorite characters in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then he, then he does what he does. And then he bails after that. 
and you're just like, wow. So like, I mean, all this talk and like, you know, the way he, you know, tries to interact with what you thought was his best friend mm -hmm. for him basically to stab his friend in the back the way he does. Right. Right. And then, and then to be like just a complete loser about it first place. Like, and, you know, yeah. I see. Yeah. You see that. And then like, once again, seeing it as an adult, I see him as more of a complex character too. It's like, he's, you have once again thinking this is not an adult. This is a right, 16, yeah, I mean, 17 year old kid. That's yeah, like, and you, and you I do don't have know to what, think of it that yeah, way. I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, I'm, I am going to make dumb mistakes. I am going right. to do stupid things. I'm not going to think clearly because you're still a kid, you know, that's, right. and so that's the thing about, that's the big difference of kind of watching these movies as adults is we kind of, we can see that a little bit clearer than, a teenager seems like, well, that's just, you know, I would have done the same thing or I, you know, whatever. Yeah, they see and, themselves differently than we looking at it for say, like, you know, we could come up as like, you could have handled that better. Yeah, of course you could have. But right. with once again, you don't see a parent, you don't see an adult guiding him through that situation. He's kind of left on his own to, to, to fend for himself in a sense. He, he made the decision he was kind of equipped <laughs> right you know, and, poorly you know, equipped to make so and by the grace of god thankfully i never have found myself in that situation so i'd right. like to say that you know i would have done it better but mm -hmm. i can't i can't honestly say that i would have but i mm -hmm. don't know you right because i was i never put myself in that that situation right so right. you know but yeah i mean he you know it, yeah you're right you know you can say like you know hindsight being the better part of you know whatever but you mm -hmm. know he he is uh you know he makes bad choices and you know yeah and who who knows because we don't because this isn't really like one overarching story it's just little vignettes kind of right loosely right. sewn together mm -hmm. we don't know what the ramifications were right you know because right. clearly clearly yeah. uh, what's her name linda uh, which Phoebe one Cates's character um is that linda i don't remember yes you're I right mean, it, yes linda Clearly, she starts taking it out on him. So at some point, right. you have to figure out that Brad probably finds out, mm -hmm. and you know, clearly Rat did. You know? mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So yeah. you know, so you have to wonder what happens there, and we never find out. And I'm sure we'll talk about the TV show. I never watched it, so I, I didn't I either. Didn't, yeah, I didn't even try to hunt it down to see if you know you can if it's streaming anywhere. I didn't. It didn't last very long, so it wasn't something that I really wanted to to seek out. Um, but speaking of some of the, like this specific plot line, did, have you ever seen last American Virgin? No. Okay. So I watched that one when I interviewed Diane Franklin, because that's one of her movies she did before better off dead. I'm going to, I'm kind of hit this part and then we'll go back and hit, we'll go back into some more trivia. That's a little more lighter. We're kind of in a heavy spot right now. So I want to kind of stay right. here and, and we'll, we'll end on a happy note. Um, in the commentary, Crow mentions the movie Over the Edge from 1979 as something of a reference point. Now, Over the Edge was a movie made. It was uh, is a foreign film, but it was made by the same director um, that made Last American Virgin, which basically Last American Virgin is just American version of that. I want to say it was an Israeli film. Um, but in that without giving too much away, but in that story, there's also an abortion plot, but where you have the young, the guy who's pining for the girl, but his, one of his, like his, one of his friends ends up taking the girl, gets her pregnant, then kind of bails on her. And last American Virgin, the kid goes and helps her, helps her recover from the abortion. It's a much 
bigger part of the plot line um, in the movie. Um, but it doesn't have a very happy ending either. And I won't, won't get into that, but if you haven't seen it, it's a very good movie. It's, it's kind of like this one where there's a lot of slapstick and a lot of goofy, funny, you know, teen comedy things. But then about halfway through the movie, it definitely takes this kind of darker turn and it just doesn't kind of go back to the fun, happy times at the end. But, okay. um, but it's definitely, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeing, um, you know, for a movie buff and an eighties, eighties, um, eighties friend, but it's, but mention that in the commentary crow mentions over the edge as something of a reference point, but there's no shout out for last American Virgin, which was released actually the month before fast times at Ridgemont high and features some similarly similar dramatic character beats. So while we were kind of there talking about it, I just thought that was interesting that if you like this one, like I said, they kind of touch on it and they move on. If you want a movie that deals a little bit more with that subject, a little bit more, I don't want to say real, but have not been put in that position either. So I don't know how real it is, um, but definitely tells that story a little bit more in depth than this one does. So if you, if you feel so inclined, uh, but kind of while we're there too, I wanted to read this. Uh, this was Cameron Crowe on his website, his perspective on this movie, which I think will kind of may say some of the things we've been kind of alluding to and kind of putting in, in kind of saying a little bit better than we could since he wrote it. Um, he said, Fast Times Ridgemont High is true to the humor of the kids. He said, it's not a teen exploitation picture. It's the way they live. The anguish and adolescent turmoil as portrayed in most of the current articles and movies about teenagers is important, but the humor is also important. The kids love to have fun. The contemporary kids also lead adult lives at younger and younger ages, he continues, for instance, making money is important to them. They feel that allowance from parents is humiliating. The economy has affected them more than people know. Each of the characters in Fast Times has their own theme. The kids struggle with independence, success, sexuality, money, maturity, school, and particularly with just making it through the formative years. There are girls who discover sex before romance and exist with a false maturity through their teens and the boys who try to deal with the fact that the girls their age are in a different world in many ways, forcing them to grapple with their budding masculinity. In the high school hierarchy, there are those filled with the work ethic who hurry to their fast food jobs after school, and the hustlers who deal in whatever commodities the kids demand. There are even a few kids who don't aspire to success in adulthood at all, <clears throat> but are happy being their own age. Producer Azoff sees Crow as, quote-unquote, the culture expert of this movie. He really understood it, knew it, and lived it. It's about relationships and growing up fast. The time goes by so fast for kids today who are out, of, who are out on their own much earlier than the past. They learn very quickly how to deal with their independence. Crow said there are two meanings of the title Fast Times. He said the primary meaning is that adolescence is faster than it was in the past. The other meaning is that it captures the whole fast food system that these kids are involved in today. Kids are working and leading adult lives. They cram much more into limited time before ha before going out into the work world. So I think that's puts a lot of the movie kind of in perspective. Like we said, uh, an hour and 30 minutes. So you're getting these fast glimpses. But I almost feel like that's almost intentional to say, look, they are growing up fast. And you think, let's think about our childhood, the Gen X generation. That's kind of what we're known as we were the latchkey kids. We were the kids that both of our parents, we were the first generation pretty much where both parents were working 
when we came home, there wasn't daycare for us. <laughs> you know, it was like, you, you got a key, you can get in the house, you lock the door, you don't answer for nobody. You know, um, right. you watch afternoon cartoons and if you have homework, you do it until somebody comes home and makes dinner. I mean, that's, that's the childhood I remember. So thinking of them as teenagers is kind of the same way. It's like there, there weren't parents there and the, for the most part to, to guide them through these situations, they felt like they were growing up faster than the generations before them. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, I thankfully was one of the lucky ones where my mom didn't go to work until like I was a junior or senior in high school. Okay. Um, so like I didn't necessarily have the complete latchkey kid experience, mm-hmm. but I definitely was way more independent than kids are. Like I do remember the days of just, being you know kicked out of the house the sun's up get out you know (laughs) right right you know um i i i I remember getting my first job when i was you know i got my driver's license and i was like i gotta get a job Mm -hmm. yeah i started working when i was 15 i was a bag i was a i was bagging groceries at 15 before you know and before i was 16 so yeah but yeah i mean i had an older sister so i wasn't totally necessarily by myself i mean i had a sister there but we were still there by ourselves i remember we tell stories now about, you know, coming home and being hungry. My sister would take a piece of loaf bread and just put it in the microwave for 30 seconds till it got soft. And then she would just eat bread <laughs> or, you know, I remember taking like the steakum sandwich patties. My mom would buy those. I would, I remember as like before middle school, like I had to have been like in fifth or sixth grade. I was cooking that on the stove with no adult supervision. You know, uh, I remember yeah. being, ho- I remember being home from school by myself at you know in elementary school like by myself at home way before it was the legal age now it's like you can't be left alone unless you're 13 or older i think now is is in most some states or some some counties i guess yeah i don't i don't know i don't you know i don't keep up with that so yeah well as a parent we have to but yeah all right well we gotta we we talked a lot longer on this than i thought we would (laughs) but uh, but anything else to add on what he said? I mean, you, I mean, I think no. He, I mean, I think, I think he said it. He said it pretty succinctly. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's hit some uh scenes and trivia. Kind of get a little bit more happy note to end. Uh, this one. Not that it was necessarily sad, but just we're serious. Um. So Amy Heckerlin said she was seeking to make a comedy that was less structured than conventional ones, and more like 1973's American Graffiti. So that, quote unquote, if you woke up and found yourself living in the movie, you'd be happy. I wanted that kind of feel. So she wanted it to be, like we said, not one overarching story, more like little bits and pieces where you kind of find yourself in it. So, Okay. Uh, The mall scenes were shot during the night from when the mall closed at 9.30 p.m. to when it opened again at 9 o'clock the next morning. The two kids who Damone scalped the tickets to were under 18 and due to labor laws, couldn't film past certain hours, so they basically only had ten minutes to f- to film their scenes. Speaking of that, yes, Van Halen tickets in the first ten rows <laughs> for twenty bucks, right? Like, Crazy. I don't, I don't even think twenty bucks gets you in the parking lot of a van. I mean, not that Van Halen's boring anymore, but right when they but were any boring, concert, right? Like any, you know, I mean, you know, you know, I can't imagine like. Like twenty bucks for the first ten rows of Van Halen, like just right. wow! Like that that scene immediately struck it stuck out to me as like man, <laughs> that. Yep, yep. Even when the, like said we talked about the the fast food scene was like my breakfast was like two dollars and fifteen cents or whatever. I'm like, 
who can get a full breakfast for $2.15 anymore? Come on, man. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Uh, according to Amy Heckerling, Sean Penn and his pals were actually smoking marijuana in the van as they exited for the prom. No surprise there, I don't think. Well, if he's a method actor, I'm assuming yeah, that he I'm sure he was, yeah. In the tradition of E.T., the Reese's and Reese's Pieces, sorry, in the tradition of E.T., the extraterrestrial and Reese's Pieces, this movie also had product placement uh, for an obscure brand and it became famous. You know what it was? Uh, the van shoes. Yeah, the checkered board canvas decks Spicoli hammered himself with. Vans became a national brand soon after. And they said, I think the guys who own or the makers of the shoes so they weren't ready for the demand when it finally hit. They were just, they were trying to keep up. So uh, we talked about like deleted scene, only deleted scene I put in here. We talked about kind of some things that didn't make sense. So in a deleted scene that is often shown on TV broadcast, Stacy tells Linda that Ron Johnson, the older guy that she went to the point with had called her house and was told that she was still in high school, which is why we never see or hear from him again after that point in the movie. Yeah. And, and Ron Johnson, which is a fake name if I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, when she's like, "I'm 19." Come on, man. Right. Like, yeah. You know, I right. mean, even though she was actually 19 in real life, like mm-hmm. that ain't. She don't look 19. You yeah. had to know she was lying. Right. Right. Yeah. Those uh, those scenes kind of, kind of when well, I do I do want to say I do want to mention this. I didn't put this in. I don't know why I didn't really. I, well, because Tyler like talked too much about it, but. You know, Amy Heckerling really, there was a lot of those, like the, some of the more explicit scenes, I'll put it that way. She wanted to film differently, but the studio wouldn't let her do it or also M- MPAA. And not that it would try, they weren't trying to be overly explicit, but she wanted to show the nervousness and the vulnerability and the nervousness. There was a certain word she used that I thought was good. I can't think of it now. But basically like that, that experience of being young and, you know, doing what they were doing. That's like, how do you talk about this on a podcast? Um, but she wanted to show that it uh, awkward, how awkward it was. That's the word I was looking for. And oh, she, she hit the nail on the head with those, those, the two scenes I think you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially the first one, the one at the point, like the, well, the one at the point, she specifically said there were there were there were things like the scene. It's interesting to watch now because you see her like looking at the things that are written in the dugout, and it's like there's a part of like what does that even make sense? But it's they she wanted to show her perspective of like this isn't romantic, this isn't you know right a, a relationship. It's just you're just saying you did it. So does that really even you know mean anything? And then later with uh, Mike where it's that awkwardness like she wanted the she wanted a scene where they were actually standing there looking at each other and both being like oh my gosh we're about to do this why are we you know like almost having like an internal dialogue with each other like are we sure we want to do this why are we doing this but they they wanted to cut so much of that out because they didn't they didn't want the realness of it they wanted just the you know right what they got so Sorry, we went back in the into the serious talk, <laughs> but I thought that no, was, I mean, the, well, this movie does that. that. I mean, yeah, the movie does it goes in ebbs and flows where you get a yeah. scene where it's you know where Brad you know threatens to kick somebody's butt over <laughs> right. breakfast, and then you get the serious line, and then you get back to the the there's no way in real life, although apparently it did happen. Um, 
they were taken to a morgue and shown a, a <laughs> dissection. Like, right. I was like, there's no way. And then like during your trivia and somewhat of I read it, I was like, wait, so somebody actually did something close to that? Like, mm-hmm. what? Also, what what high school has a monkey? <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. All right. Uh, anything, any other scenes or any other thing, anything else you want to? One, you want to mention there's there's two other things, but one in particular. Okay. Linda, Phoebe Case's character, keeps talking right. about her super mature boyfriend. Her fian- fiance. Her fiance. Fiance, who, yeah. The more she talked about him, and the more she started kind of contradicting herself here and there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he I and they kind of hint at it in some of the trivia that I was reading. Right. But like I, I really kind of started to pick up on it before I even read the trivia. He's fake. Like he's oh, not real. Yeah. Like Look, like, I, I figured that when she went, uh, when, if a high school g- girl says her fiance that's in wherever, you already know that it's it's a lie, you know, that they've never yeah. seen. So, so I, I assume that pretty early. Yeah. I honestly have to wonder, like, because she's like, oh, yeah, I've done all this and I've done all that. It's like, how much of it has she actually done? Like, mm-hmm. she's goading her friend into doing things that, you know, neither right. of these girls should have been doing. And you have to wonder, like, how much was she actually doing mm-hmm. herself? Mm-hmm. You know? And I knew I knew people like that in high school that were the exact same way <laughs> that had all this. They, they I, talk. They I, talked. A, they talked a big game, but then I totally I, have a girlfriend in Canada. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the girlfriend in Canada. Oh gosh, yeah. I, I, had, I, met, I, her, to, I met her at summer camp. I hate to say that I've played that. I played that game and it 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 backfired pretty bad. So I even yes, I can't believe I'm confessing this on my own podcast. Uh, I found some picture in a in a catalog or whatever and tried to fake try to pass it off as a pictures he sent. Oh, so I never bad. did. I never so did bad. that. So bad. I'm surprised. I'm honestly surprised I did. Quite honestly, right. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know what kind of guys we were like in high school, this episode should tell you all about. Well, that. and better off dead. I think you both yeah. of these episodes together. <laughs> I think you'll really kind of put a a pretty clear picture of who we were in high school. Right. Um, um, the only other thing I want to talk about is the soundtrack. Okay, go for it. Because I mean, how good? How good is yeah. that soundtrack? Yeah, it's I mean, got from some good the stuff from the from the get go, the first I mean, the starts with the Go Go's. Mm-hmm. You got Tom Petty, you got the Eagles, uh, Led Zeppelin, the Go Go. You know, mm-hmm. like just um, some of the cover songs that they had, like you know, it just I mean, and you when you look at the soundtrack that they released. Which is which is you know a phenomenon of the eighties where they get a soundtrack full of songs that weren't in the movie mm-hmm. and songs that were in the movie not on the soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> but they had license to do yeah all the licensing. Yeah. But yeah, so but I mean, it's also one of the few sound like they they uh, there was some one of the trivia things I saw was there was no instrumental score for this movie at all. Like it's just it's just song you know it's just popular you know pop music songs or rock songs of the, of the time. Yeah. So well, and and you know that kind of continues i mean on from there with i think you get you know that's a hallmark of cameron crow like mm-hmm. I mean, the sound the soundtrack of yep. his yep. I mean, even though he only wrote the movie like he clearly was involved in the making of it and, yeah you know. yeah i know i know tarantino is that way i want to say cameron crow is that way too like that he writes with music like he has music playing while he's writing and he thinks that helps him like it, yeah. it gives him like the the emotion he's he tries to find songs that match the emotion he's trying to get in the the scenes, and he kind of so that's why some of the songs end up in the movies is because he's like, I got to have this song because that's what I was playing when I was writing it, kind of a thing. Yeah, 
So, all right, so all you got? Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much everything on my list. So We've talked a lot about it. I don't think we've covered the movie as well as I would like to th- thought we did. But I mean, um, it's still, it's it's fun. Uh, but let's talk about box office and critical reception. So uh, Universal originally planned to only release the film in the Western part of the United States for a few weeks before sending it off to cable due to the belief that there was no audience for it. But after an excellent response, the film went wide three weeks later with a big opening in the Eastern United States and had a long run in theaters. So it was released on August 13th, 1982 in 498 theaters. It earned 2.5 million its opening weekend. It was then really widened to 713 theaters, earning 3.25 million. It ranked 29th among the U.S. releases in 1982, earning 27 million. Six times its $4.5 million budget. But it gained most of its popularity through television and home video releases. I'm sure they're meaning cable television and not regular television because right, that's yeah. what it was playing. And then uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 78 on the tomato meter with an 80% audience score. And IMDb has 7.1 out of 10 with viewers and a 61 on Metacritic. Yet again, Metacritic. Yeah. Although although that is high for Metacritic. That is but... that is actually better than I thought it was going to get for Metacritic. Yeah. yeah. I, where are you with you 70s, 80s, 90s? Um, I'm probably in the IMDb score with it. You know, like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and, and I think my review of it this time is very different than it would have been you know, had <laughs> we done this like 10 years ago. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, seven seems about fair. Yeah. That's what I, I, I think I rated it around a seven on IMDb for me. It's, it is one that I, I will watch. I mean, I own it. So, I mean, I own it more for like the, seeing the, the the cast at a young age like the breakthrough roles for the cast and i mean it is a fun it has fun moments it's a movie that i I will watch again it's not something i'm going to pop in as often as some other ones that we talked about earlier but um i think it's worthy of a collection uh for 80s movies or 80s lovers for sure um yeah so but it's not it's not going to rank as high as some other ones that we've had on the on the show for sure yeah no right on yeah, that's that's what I would say. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Nicholas, for joining the podcast. Anything else you want to add or say? No. I mean, I, I think we said it all. We've, we've, covered, <laughs> we've covered the movie. It. So. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, I know you just talked about it a couple weeks ago, but got anything you want to plug for the podcast? Pop culture um, that. We've got a we've got a series coming up here pretty soon. Um, where we're going to debate um, like the nine different men who have played Batman live action. Okay. Um, but for like every comic book character that I could think of. So it, it's going to be, you know, a three to four or five part episode where like we're going to do DC and, you know, mm-hmm. some of them are going to be really quick because, you know, they had two actors that played it and one of them was <laughs> an obscure obscure 1970s tv movie right and you know one was you know and then but other ones like batman or superman are going to be a difficult conversation you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and I, I tried to do it for dc marvel and then you know all of the other you know because you know dc and marvel aren't the only two comic uh companies out there. right right you know so but they're they're not big enough to get their own episode so i tried to do it all <laughs> in, in yeah one so it, it'll be gotcha. interesting to see what we do with that because that that took that was a lot of research so 
Very cool. All right, well, be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Support the show through buymeacoffee.com or buy a T-shirt or sweatshirt from the website. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone else who loves 80s flicks as much as you do. Of course, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Help us grow. So uh, excited about what's coming up. We're, this is the first episode back after uh, taking a break for March when we did the replay episodes. And uh, actually, at the time of this recording, I'm a day away from the three-year anniversary of my very first episode. So we'll say this is kind of the anniversary episode uh, for three years. We've been in the world as the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So uh, I meant to say that at the beginning, but I'll save it for the end. All right. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I appreciate that. So keep us alive and what we do. So, all right. Thanks again, Nicholas, for joining. I appreciate it, man. We'll get it. We got another one, fun one coming up in the summer. Right. Look forward to that one. Well, thanks everybody for listening. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.